are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Ed Gentry, he runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dean. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests. Talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, He's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds. Will you go in? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. Would you like to there anywhere watching us right now we ain't gonna be so nice not hard to follow dragging a corpse Thank you. 
John Boorman's film of James Dickey's explosive best-selling novel. That is some preview. I did not I feel like they did two conceptual things there and they didn't work very well together. It was first they wanted it to seem like some kind of documentary where like, you know, you're actually following them into the, yeah. into the woods. And then the second thing is that like, you know, trying to like freak you out with the, Duh! and I feel like those two things kind of are jarring to put together because one of them is like a realistic documentary style uh, trailer. And the other one is like, I don't know, like an Alfred Hitchcock almost like end of trailer thing. <laughs> it's, Odd, but I did appreciate that the banjo playing did indeed intensify as the scenes got more. <laughs> Just like the meme. Exactly. All right. Well, this is movie night extravaganza. We are here hanging out. Audrey just ran in and apparently um, you can see her behind me. Um, yeah, I'm Forrest Miller, you know, hanging out here. Uh, unfortunate damn employee is my name that I'm going with today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel bad for whatever like power uh, representative person came in after that to set the dam up. Um, I am joined as always by Jay Underworld, who did not pick a who did not pick a um, name today, an extra name. Yeah, I, I kind of felt weird because I was bullied by a bunch of kids that sound just like the kids' names in this movie while I was living in Georgia. So uh, I, I got a little nervous, and I'm just going to be like, "No, they're going to like track me down." All these years later, they're going to track me down. So, yeah. so I thought. <laughs> I thought I'd go with just classic, classic Coke. You got bullied by John Voight and uh, Burt Reynolds? Ronnie Cox. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I was friends with Ronnie Cox. I got bullied by Burt Reynolds. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he does seem like the type. Especially yeah. in that outfit. Yeah. <laughs> um, also joined by Protonic Reversals and Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. Conan, canoe life, uh, Neutron over there. That's right. Canoe or die. That's what I say. I say it all the time. <laughs> Uh, stoked to be t uh, talking about this one. I, this is my first watch of this as an adult, and I feel like I got more out of it. So I'm excited to discuss this film, which I think is very interesting in a number of ways. And, and I'm very excited to have Mark on as well. And, and it's also the first time you said canoe or die where it actually made sense in context. Exactly. I say it all the time, but my time <laughs> has arrived, folks. Yes. <laughs> all right. Also joined by Christina Oaks. Uh, I'm Christina on Twitch. Who gets her big episode on Friday when we have uh, Keffels on to talk about the Suicide Squad? That should be an interesting adventure. Yeah. It's quite the dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. You know, all these different Twitch streamers getting together to save the world from Western imperialism. Let's go. <laughs> save it for Friday. <laughs> and we are joined by Mark Borchard, uh, you know, uh, indie director, um, music video director. Uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let, I'll let you. Thank you. Thank you. I was getting to that. Uh, yeah. So exactly what he, uh, described and, uh, we're obviously the show, uh, runs for quite a bit of time. So we don't have to like compress anything because we have all the time to expand. Just like the river. Once they uh, <laughs> added, you know, the water to it and it drowned out the city. We too can expand our, you know, our lake. Uh, our lake of discourse into yes. this conversation. We're the lake effect of movie shows. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think it's interesting after uh, watching um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre a few months ago, right? Like this movie feels like it, it was the kind of lead up to that concept. Like the, like ob obviously there was only kind of two very creepy rednecks in this and, you know, that were kind of uh, 
in the woods and, and pretty um pretty evil, I guess. But you know, it feels like that kind of concept where it's like almost like you kick the hornet's nest, right? Where like everyone says, Don't fuck with that river, stay away from the river. And they're like, No, we're still gonna go to the river. Like it's it's a river, what's gonna happen? It feels like that kind of conceptual uh plot built out to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two years later. Yeah, that's that's a good you know, that's that's good. Um you know, that you brought that up in a sense. I mean, that's a, it's a very, obviously a very basic motif, you know, to stay away from something because something harmful is going to happen, but of course they indulge it anyway, thereby the uh, film exists and so on and so forth. But yeah, they do have the same field. Um, you know, obviously uh, Deliverance was a Hollywood film shot on 35. Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre was shot on 16, but they have that uh, very kind of like earthen feel to it nonetheless where you are part of the environment uh immediately you don't have a choice you're 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 in the landscape and you're not getting out of it so yeah and and the nature kind of itself um almost empowers the uh you know the 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 unspeakable evil and the hidden nature i guess of the you know the people within it in both kind of contexts right like their land like setting foot on their land is kind of uh it's almost like you fired the first shot without knowing it and that, and that takes you back to like almost yeah. like a very it's a, it's a very primal territorial uh you know sense of humanity i think well and it's ascribed to the south but really it's i mean think of like the appalachians you know think of like any place where uh you have folks where it's like ancestral homes you know hatfields and mccoys etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. like it's often a <clears throat> trope now not to just utilize that term uh in films to have like the backwoods hick that you know they want you to get off their land but i mean that is that is very real and there's and then historically there's good reason for it whether it's you know regional internecine conflicts or just the fact that when the government shows up it's not usually for anything good for them you know like yeah. good. And, and then also maybe they're just maniacs and or have chainsaws mm-hmm. with the texas chainsaw massacre but you know, like it's, I, I think it's, it's a good way of looking at it. Be like, think of like the gypsy characters, right? They're always used as the harbingers in some case, or in some cases, the instigators for, you know, whatever malevolent presence is going on. Just, you know, worst PR in the past, like hundred year, few hundred years. Um, but that said, they have their story and they have their rationale as to like why maybe they adopted certain uh, character traits culturally to keep people away from them and keep them poking in their business so yeah and i've also like uh you know the uh you know uh the tr- with with the turn of the century uh you know uh leading up to this movie there was a lot of places in the south uh in particular where they actually did flood out cities uh which which was a big thing and so you know this was part of the uh the the uh cultural heritage i remember um when my uncle my, my uncle the fisherman came down to visit us in georgia he got a houseboat uh, that he rented and we went out one of the man-made lakes and he just laughed at people uh, there. Cause you know, he's, he's a big ocean fisherman and he's he, uh, on this little man-made lake um, uh, on a little houseboat with his family. Yeah. Well, we, we forget that, you know, uh, rural electrification, right. It's something that only happened a, f- a few decades ago, like, you know, yeah. 80 years ago, like FDR was president when, you know, the biggest um, uh, rural electrification projects happened um, during the new deal. So like, you know, property was getting confiscated all the time people were coming in there they were flooding entire like communities they were obviously building roads leading up to those power places like the entire infrastructure was being built and changed and i i think that you know in the 70s with like the the um conservation movement right like 
where when this movie kind of is the backdrop of that, like people started to realize that we've changed the landscape so much that like it's almost like the landscape is going to come back. And we talked about that with the uh, Blair Witch Project too. Like, you know, it's almost like um, reclaim. Like nature is going to reclaim, you know, the uh, stuff back from the humans. And I think in this movie, the rural populations kind of represent that. Indeed. Mark, you ha I know. I think you read the book, right? Is, is that what you yeah. said when we were talking came, earlier? Yeah, the book came out in 70. I read the, the book. What you also want to do is they published actually James Dickey's screenplay. And it's like about, I don't know, 160 some pages. And actually, I had the pleasure of finding the book on the shelf again and, and picked it up, read uh, the screenplay for the second time. And... Uh, the screenplay that Dickie wrote is not in conventional form with scene breaks or anything like that. And he puts yeah. his, uh, being not a director, he puts his directorial hand in it deeply as the camera movements, all of that stuff in immense detail. And when they got Dickie's script, anyone in their right mind said, hey, you know what? We got to hire some motherfucker to write a script, dude, because this is, un <laughs> this is, this is crazy. You know, transcribing the novel, intimate detail on how he... Uh, cinematically wants to see it done, which is none of his business as a screenwriter. So, you know, somebody ha must have took that thing and said, man, we got to we, we gotta do something with this because we have to hand this out to the crew. We have to have scene breaks, breakdowns and all that. And what he handed us just ain't going to make it. It's a, it is a, in, a, in a way that screenplay is a work of art because you know it's unusable it's very deep it's very dense alludes to <laughs> mysteries that cannot be exp be explored by the uh, filmmaking team all of that stuff so it is just a and then you know they they throw half of the stuff he, he wrote out has not had nothing to do uh it never should uh, became a part of the film and so on and so forth so yeah reading that screenplay uh and the novels is a pure delight because um he has some intentions about ambiguity and mystery that are actually hinted at in the film when you see uh, the four guys show up at the Griner's brothers to uh, try to hire them to get the canoes down. You know, there's some mysterious movement in the shadows uh, that doesn't have any narrative um, quality to it as for revealing anything about character or, the narr or moving the narrative along. But it's just a kind of maybe an homage that ambiguity that definitely had no definition in the novel, in the screenplay. There's a, maybe a little nod to that. Uh, maybe I'm hallucinating. I don't know, but I kind of remember that—that that, the darkness and the grinders thing and whatever. So yeah, I would definitely. Uh, well, it's do what you want. Uh, but I mean, if you're so interested, yeah, the novel and both the screenplay are—they are infinitely rewarding. And they used a lot of the like dialogue directly from the novel for the film. Yeah. Um, I well, I think that there's. <laughs> Well, it, it cuts both ways. A lot of that dialogue is completely unfilmable. A lot of that dialogue, especially in the screenplay, is completely laughable. That they, they we're, we're not we're not having anybody say this. It's it's yeah. really bad. It's really clunky. They threw a lot of it out. So a lot of things did not uh, directly translate uh, from the source into the uh, ultimate film because it just god awful, god awful dialogue. I mean, there's some remnants of it like with anyone who writes but for the most part uh that dialogue in the screenplay was god awful and they didn't use it and uh john borman it looks like was the director uh the director of excalibur 
was the guy yeah. who rewrote yeah. the uh, Excalibur and um, Zardos. Yes, which which are two great films. Uh, but very Excalibur, I, I love because if you watch the director's commentaries, he's like, "Oh yes, yeah, so I have Excalibur hanging on my wall, and um, it's right next to the Holy Grail, actually." <laughs> Yeah, so I have a I have a clip of uh, Ned Beatty and uh, and John Borman talking about wait one second talking about this uh, the process of like getting the movie together, and um, there's a lot of there's actually more stuff than I figured that there would be with uh, clips that are out there of like the process of making he, it. the guy I, and the the writer I forget his name right now but like he was pretty kind of like a thorn in Borman's side too is my understanding so I'm, I'm eager to see what these clips. Are. With the yeah, that's why he said Mark said it earlier, but I'm yeah. excited to see, see what these clips look like because it sounds like it was a bit, a bit contentious. Yeah, I mean, I have I have two for the after party where they go more into the relationship between them, I think. Cool. Um, but um, uh, I don't know why day, Michael Palin's in this, by the way. Had a party drunk a lot as usual. I couldn't sleep, and Deliverance was the film that was on. I started watching it and I fell into a half sort of stupor, I suppose, and then kept waking up and seeing more of this. So the film and and my dreams are sort of all intertwined. And once you get deliverance stuck in your dream system, it's truly frightening. Hey, what, what happens if we flip this thing over? Now that you pop that up, hang on your paddle. And if you hit any rocks, don't hit them with your head. This uh, hazardous <laughs> journey that they take, it, which becomes very primal, it seemed to me to be a perfect kind of metaphor for, for what's happening between modern urban man and the, and the landscape. It's not a subject that we are easily enthralled with. It took a poet and a really uh, tough filmmaker to take us there the first time. You done taken a wrong turn. See, uh, the Sherry River don't go nowhere near Antry. The mountain men who come and, uh, uh, and rape them, or rape one of them, uh, come out of the woods. They, and I, I shot it in such a way that you see these men, they seem to emerge out of the trees. So they're like the malevolent spirit of uh, the forest. Go. Hey, boy. No. You look just like a hog. No, go. Just like a hog. Don't get biggie. No. Don't get I had a, a, a robust uh, relationship with censors about this issue because I argued that. Uh, uh, they were—they were all horrified. This is the first time anything this, this had ever been seen on film, and I argued that we'd seen a lot of women raped. And what was the difference? I'm really proud of it because I think it scared the hell out of people, which, in essence, was what it was meant to do. It was meant to be frightening, and I think it was. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's kind of one of the observations I took away from it watching it as an adult is like, I think one of the reasons why everyone is horrified by that scene is because it's a de depiction of rape, but a guy doing it to another guy. And you just don't see that in movies. Yeah. yeah. Andy, you're muted. But um, yeah. And, and I mean, you see it more now with like prisons and stuff in, in movies, I mean, but like, but you sure. don't go on as long as this you one, but it's, it's not as, you don't, you don't get out in a while, I guess. Um, yeah. There, there, yeah. there's some like staring to the abyss and the abyss stares back at you moments with, with that scene. Let's be clear. Yeah. I mean, very few times, like even, like even, even before uh, like the 1970s, I mean, rape was depicted. It was yeah. hinted at. They never really showed 
it's, it was heavily implied, like the one movie, Two Women with uh, Sophie, uh, Sophia Loren, they yeah. showed like the bare minimum they could get away with, with the fact that the mother and daughter both get gang raped by a bunch of rebels. And so the fact that, you know, 1973 in a movie like this comes out with such a graphic rape scene, it's like it, between two men, with two men, it's like it's something that's never been seen before. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and I straw dogs, with, was straw dogs before or after this? I'm trying to remember. The thing is that that's 71. The back of the Peck and Pop movie is like right before it. But that's that's like one of the only other examples I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, because everything I'm thinking of happened after I spit on your grave and um, yeah, uh, Death Wish. Yeah. I, 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 and honestly, like it's an, it's completely overused. I mean, that's that's one of my biggest complaints about the last duel. It was like, really, like really, come on, you, that's what you got your inciting incident. Okay, I don't know. Mark, what do you what do you think about any of that? I don't. I don't. I think about other. Things. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I mean, Fair. I mean, that's a good. Yeah, I mean, when people be asking me crazy stuff and say, "What do you think about that?" So uh, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. I'm not thinking about that. And it's, I'm on my list of eight uh, seven eight thousand seven hundred forty one things that ain't on it, man. Um, but it's a it's a good life. It's a, it's a great world. And um, I came to James Dickey uh, through kind of like his his legend of self create or just a lot of hard work that he was not I mean he's he's academically educated certainly but he took it upon himself to create his own life and became his own not unlike Bob Dylan who became their own institution through sheer force of will and momentum of their idiosyncratic ambition aided and embedded only by themselves and like when Dickie was working in Atlanta for Coca-Cola you know he'd be in his office working on his poetry as well and that's what I mean is that he his his life and his work was uh, not only an infinite tapestry, but it was a tapestry that didn't have parameters cut off by the limitations of where he particularly was working or what he was doing. That uh, what his mind and work was always within that tapestry of the general flow of twenty four hours of life a day. I think it's interesting too that um, you mentioned in his screenplay that it's not really like a traditional screenplay and as someone that's that's done both like being a screenwriter and a director i know when i i first attempted to write a screenplay i didn't know what i was doing so i i yeah i put in like every piece of of everything and then i read an actual screenplay and it was like oh i'm doing this so wrong like that isn't you didn't get that uh finish your finish the screenplay in 90 days book or whatever (laughs) 30 30. (laughs) well i probably could have if i wasn't putting of it (laughs) if i wasn't putting in literally every piece of direction like i i basically had it like oh this would be how it was directed this would be how like you know the set was be designed like and i had no idea because how would i know right because i did i did but that's probably an autodidact you only gotta rely on yourself Although, to be fair i i read the uh, highlander script in uh college so you know I, I knew what a script was supposed to look like uh but mark getting back to what, what i was saying is that like since you i think it's interesting you mentioned that dickie wrote the original script and it was kind of almost i guess you would call it overwritten probably right yes uh because they're different skills and I think that, like, maybe even people that are really into films, as maybe people uh, listening to or watching the show might be, may not understand the difference. And I think that that's actually this is a good, this is a good conversational topic for this movie because, it, like, if this was overwritten, it doesn't work as a film. I don't think. 
even what even the parts that are overwritten um in this a little bit like i would say that like you get a lot of information about them at different times like the scene where they're all you know it's kind of building character stuff but like there's probably some lines you can cut but even then when when it is kind of overwritten in the sense of like you know their conversations between each other that might you know give away a, a stilted amount of information i think i think it was written uh sparsely enough that it, it works yeah, I, th- I think we're talking about two different things. That his screenplay literally was overwritten. Yeah, and when no, they, I get, I get they what you saying, wrote it like a novel, right? Like he wrote yeah, out the. Yeah, but when they yeah. made a real screenplay and filmed it, there was nothing overwritten in in the film itself. Um, you know, one of the things is that each scene has an arc and so forth, and it in a standard in 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 the temp within the template of a standard narrative. And Dickie didn't understand that you don't. And scenes with superfluous codas and so forth that because that dilutes the impact of, of of the trajectory. Each scene has a trajectory, and in Hollywood terms, you have to respect that and respect each unit, which is a scene. And um, that you know the old adage: you come in at the last moment and and uh, leave at the or you know you know see, come in at the latest time and leave at the earliest time of the scene. And you know that it's that's just the way that narrative films work. And if they're, and if uh, the uh, professional filmmaker or writer and that will clean all that stuff up and get rid of stuff and make sure that each scene has a beginning, middle, and end that's appropriate to the context of the aggregate of the uh, film and so on and so forth. And a beginning writer or a screen beginning novice screenwriter like Dickie wouldn't wouldn't understand that would just wouldn't be able to comprehend that that like a professional screenwriter well he's thinking like a novelist yeah right well, i mean you know and uh, every a novel directly into a format he doesn't understand like you know what i mean like it's a novel yeah. that's written ahead yeah time. well i mean different media has like different results so like you know you can't uh you can't adapt you can't be too true with a comic book because if you do that it just it doesn't quite work because the structures aren't the same um you know you need to, you need to make a comic book work for the film you need to make the the book work for the comic book. You need to, you know, what, what, if you're taking something from one medium and going into another medium, you gotta you gotta think about like what worked, what what would benefit the story for this medium. Yeah, and I think with a movie like this, it's all about kind of being uh, sparse about like you want to know these characters, but you don't want to overknow these characters, right? Like you don't want someone to go off on some whole tangent about like. You know, like a couple times they do with like the family or whatever, or the job, and like you kind of know something. Like you know enough about them by the time they get into this that you kind of know probably what like tropes they're gonna fall into, or you know how their survivalist mentality is gonna work. This movie kind of reminds me of like Lord of the Flies a little bit, right? Like yes, that's exactly really? what I was thinking too. I was like, this is gonna mean Lord of the Flies. It was the pig part, part, wasn't it? Yeah, it was piggy. No, <laughs> no, but it's like you know, in the same way, right? Like each of them re- represents a different part of the like urban rural dynamic and you know you have like i think it's it's kind of fascinating that uh i burt reynolds character's name's larry right like this is no no drew medlock i mean uh, not uh, lewis medlock lewis yeah lewis Lewis medlock his character right is someone who's kind of cultivated this hunter persona where he's like oh i love the outdoors but like just like uh you know just like ronnie cox says like he can't hack it like he's not really an outdoors guy right like he's kind of someone and i think everybody knows people like that like people that are like oh like i'm a big hunter i'm i'm out in the wilderness all the time but it's like yeah but like a very uh like self-cultivated i guess version of that like you're not going into the into the deep which a lot of people like die on mount everest everest and stuff for that reason yeah. like they just can't hack it and you, you get the feeling that that's that guy right like that's Burt reynolds character is the guy that yeah, dies I mean, he shows up everest. dressed as a superhero and and he like <laughs> Breaks his leg and is, is uh, out for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Speaking of uh, breaking legs, oh, go 
Speaking of breaking legs, you know how many injuries this film had and like drownings and I mean this film was dangerous to to film. Well, really? they're, like, they're on the rapids. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you can't. Yeah, really I mean, it's really them. It's, yeah, it's Benny, I mean, Benny yeah. almost drowned. Like he got caught up in a whirlpool, and Burt Reynolds broke his tailbone at Ooh. one point. Uh, yeah, like, I, mean, I don't think they got insurance for the film. They did it without without insurance, I believe, because of that. What what is what does the Burt Reynolds character say about insurance in this? It's it's hilarious. It's deeply hilarious knowing that. Uh, I, I don't like, need insurance. I don't believe in it. He said, "I don't believe in it." this would be dangerous to film because you know there's probably not a not yeah. a high budget for it it's and, not practical effects it's literally happening like they're yeah. doing stuff that some people would be doing now and, and they yeah. filmed it all in the chattahoochee river yeah um so so you know that's that's uh the the second best song in this movie that uh about the chattahoochee uh first best of course being alan jackson Oh, they're going to say dueling banjos. <laughs> that was the first thing they filmed, too, while the rest of the movie was in sequence. Of course they would film that first. Yeah. The, well, the I mean, Ronnie Cox scene. really is a uh, guitar player and uh, tours around now. He's uh, retired from acting and is a full-time musician. I think they should have let the kid smash the banjo like he's on stage. Like, ah! <laughs> well, but, but real talk, though, that is an iconic scene for a reason. Like, and, and it plays out in a little bit. I was thinking about, remember when we did Murder and Extravaganza and we talked about the Harbinger and, like, that trope of, like, you know, the don't go to the old cabin kind of thing. Yeah. Like in a way, like in an indirect way, like that that crew and especially like the the banjo kid is a bit of a harbinger, right? Where it's sort of like where he like goes to shake his hand and he just like moves his head away, yeah. like and they see it, they really see him over the river at that one point, and there's yeah, and he's like just just yeah. around, just hanging out, hanging out around, uh, but like you know for a while for a second you're like oh they're having a moment great they're actually you know they're actually acclimating uh oh everything's gonna be fine and then like you just get that kind of like oh no they're outsiders they're outsiders and they don't want them to be there and then you have burt reynolds like doing the thing like oh i'll go find the river first and i'll go this way and that way and what and just like making a making the fool of himself too and just, know, burt reynolds. exactly <laughs> and of course oh, the- man, i should have changed my name to turd ferguson <laughs> still time that uh, yeah. that Norm, that Norm McDonald bit is so funny, when when they're doing the celebrity Jeopardy thing and yeah, <laughs> what's a Popeye? <laughs> but uh, RIP to two yeah. legends. <laughs> but I mean, Mark, what do you think about that? I mean, I think well, it's a pretty iconic scene, right? I mean, it's got. Right, but let me ask you this, and then do we are we all aware aware of the the, the actuality of the making of that with the kid playing the banjo? I, I actually don't. Are you guys for you guys. real? I, I, I mean, he, he's a, he's a legit like backwoodser, right? Isn't he? No, he's well, he's not a legitimate player because uh, you want me to tell you. Or oh, not? oh, I know he's not playing it. I Thank know that you. they put his arms through, right. like yeah. they did, like the. I, I it's like that kids in the hall bit where like the hands are a different person than the, yes. the person. Um, that I knew, but like he is a legitimate. Like that kid is like not like was not i think he's been in stuff since like i think he was in big fish and stuff yep. but like i he's not an act he was not an actor at the time but he also was not a professional level banjo player either that that i did know yeah. and you can always kind of tell when you play i think i don't know they, and don't forget the classic film blast fighter who could forget blast fighter? yes he, he was he was from georgia too uh he was he was discovered by yeah so he was discovered while they were scouting it in Georgia and he was like just a kid in Georgia that they hired to be in it, and that song became a huge huge hit 
after this movie like gigantic worldwide hit because there's slaps a, <laughs> well and it was known before but like it had like and there was like some rights contention like there's a whole i mean it's more like after party business i guess but like it, there's a whole story just behind that song i think that that part i i know and i'm fascinated by what do you guys think about i mean you know there's there's kind of like the environmentalist movement right like conservationist movement happening at the time this movie's filmed it's a big yeah you know, they're like, oh, well, maybe we've gone too far. But that is like a cultivated political identity, right? Like those are kind of a lot of the time rich liberals like going into places and going, oh, we need to save this or that, which a lot of times are like places that people already live. You know what I mean? Like it's not like a, it's people coming back from the city and then trying to rediscover um, like, you know, rural or like rural uh, like backwoods areas. And I think this movie does a really good job playing those two things off each other where it's like, no, like these people are like here, like this is where they live. They don't think about, you know, nature as this kind of um, almost like primal mystical force. But like, I think having the Ronnie Cox character be kind of like a Pete Seeker, like, uh, or like a, like a, a kind of folk music kind of guy, you know what I mean? Like that kind of hippie. The like, only role where he actually gets to do that, really. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's been bad it, guys for the rest of his career. I think it just makes it a really fascinating kind of nexus point. Well, they're outsiders, right? And that goes back to what I was saying about it being like the harbinger. And like you mentioned, Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, where there's you know very clear harbinger. But like I think that the the whole banjo scene is like that's you know it's not explicitly don't go into that barn, but it, it's it's like hey m maybe rethink this, especially when like you know the guy is like you know like when he mentions uh you know what what is a nice hat. And then, it, and like that, that scene is like, whoa, all right. I mean, yeah, the guy's like, you don't know, the guy's like, you don't know nothing or something. And yeah. yeah. What's interesting too, like bringing up the screenplay when they, that um, uh, in the screenplay he says, man, I like the way you wear your hat. And in the, the film, he says, mister, I like the way you wear that hat. And that makes all the difference in the world. Man is just this uh, ubiquitous colloquialism, widespread. And, yeah. Mr. kind of gives it a sharp two-syllable staccato to it and just it changes everything um, just uh, in from the screenplay to script just to that, that one word from man to mister with that hat scene. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, like kind of using, I guess, colloquialisms like that um, and having them speak in, in certain ways, right? Like it, the dialogue is very, um, very organic, I think. You know what I mean? Like it really does sound like they're just kind of people hanging around. But the way that the movie starts, you don't know anything about them, and they're arguing about like you know conservationism, and and you know I, I like that they uh, they kind of foreshadow everything by going they're going to rape this river, like that's like one of the first things that they're going back and forth, and they're having this conversation, yeah. and it, it's kind of it kind and of the river rapes back, apparently, <laughs> but um yeah I, I just kind of I think it's interesting that they uh it seems like the the dialogue is extremely organic I would say like it, it seems like the dialogue really does sound like you know these kind of guys who. You, you don't really know whether they know each other too well. Like some of them seem to, some of them seem to have only started hanging out recently. They're just kind of going on a fishing trip. And uh, yeah, kind of found that interesting. I, I think when you're on set in your, or, or when you're in rehearsal or on set and you start doing lines, you begin to realize what works and what doesn't. And like, well, you yeah. know, people really don't speak like this. Let's, let's speak like a person really would, you know? And um, so I think a lot of that, for a lot of scripts, I think that um, when you hear, especially like you say, organic dialogue, that's like unmistakably like real. Yeah, that's what a person would say. Generally, that's not in the script. Scripts usually have more of a classical connotation of of dialogue. And then once they get to filming it, they say, hey, you know, this tone 
this film we we want a particular tone of realism so let's 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 make the dialogue realistic so a lot of that a lot of the, the those neat lines and things that we hear are are on the spot or by the actors or by the director and it's it's not a lot of the times it's not the script writer that comes up with a lot of that that's the big David Mamet thing right like he's always like writing well, well, dialogue Mamet. that humans would not normally be speaking right, about right. Right? That's, that's a whole different thing for well number one obviously with the theater with with mammoth when he does theater you can't change one word by law for theater with film you can throw out the whole script and but his yeah his deal is that you know you you obey each and every word of the script and it comes out theatrical but that's when you see a david mammoth film that's part of the contract between uh you the paying audience and the filmmakers that you will see a very melodramatic theatrical interpretation of life. So you you've you've contracted by or knowing what his films are like, you know. And uh, sometimes you get to see Alec Baldwin and uh, and Anthony Hopkins fight a bear. We cover that oh. movie, The Edge, uh, <laughs> from from the nineties. Yeah, which I, I think is the only mammoth film we've done so far. Which is really bizarre because I I was not familiar with it. I was like, Ooh. what are they doing? Did you guys know that Jack Nicholson agreed to play Ed as long as Marlon Brando played Lewis? Wow. Wow. That movie would slap. I would watch the fuck out of that. Yeah. <laughs> that but, is a different movie. With with Jack Nicholson and, and Marlon Brando, you know that was going to be a hefty feed to put them both in this film. So that's oh, yeah. why they went for cheaper actors. I'm like, oh, yeah, the father of yeah, Angelina But, but that was like, well, Jack Nicholson was like on his way up. He hadn't quite yeah. become, because this is a couple of years. Yeah. This is just before uh, Cuckoo's Nest? It's before Cuckoo's Nest. Before, 75. Before, yeah. Yeah. It's before Chinatown. So yeah, like he yeah. was so Easy Rider had already come out, but like that's probably about it. I think, yeah, it was right? like like that and Head was his only uh big uh head. But <laughs> man, imagine if it had those two in that film. Could they have fit Marlon Brando in a canoe? I guess still at that point they could have. He could have just well, used no, he started, <laughs> famously started to get like big to the point where like they couldn't really move him. Like, I've seen he, the Godfather. I know. This is on his way. <laughs> but uh yeah, so, I, but so, I think that's a different movie though, because like it, it I, I think that almost there might have been too much acting, and I hate to say that because I love both those guys, but there might have been too much acting. The raping the business. Also, to imagine the raping the rape scene. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, yeah, where I um, saw one in Last Hangover in Paris. So, so in 2012, they interviewed uh, Billy Redden, who was the the banjo playing kid. He said he was wor he's working at Walmart, didn't see a dime from the film, like struggling Ugh. to make ends meet, still in in his town in Georgia. And the quote he says, uh, we're not a bad people up here. We're loving people. Raven County is a pretty good town. It's peaceful. Not a lot of crime going on. Just a real peaceful town. Everybody pretty much gets along with everybody, which is kind of the exact opposite of, <laughs> of the movie that we just watched. Yeah. Well, that's not a movie, though. That's just like, hey, no, check I know, out this but place it's, river, you know. Yeah. But what I'm <laughs> saying, like, I'm saying it's kind of fascinating. That, like, Where's the inciting incident? Hey, everybody was really nice to us, and we had a great time. Cool. Nice yeah, but, film. but what I'm yeah, saying is no, it's interesting that they that town. Yeah found locals from that town to like be like yeah. kind of menacing rednecks. And then, it, and then it's just an interest. Like it stigmatized the South for a couple generations. Yeah. yeah. I, I get it. I get where you're going. With well, that's not the only thing that stigmatized the South for a couple generations, but you know, they, uh, <laughs> they put in a lot of work there themselves. <laughs> oh, so Mark, yeah. is that, is that in the book? Like is, does uh, the, the, the book slash OG unfilmable screenplay, like have that menace to it? Because I yeah. think it's supposed to be semi-autobiographical, autobiographical, isn't it? No. Um, 
first and foremost, uh, we want to thank Carl King for all your uh, comments and your patronage to this show because I'm I'm seeing the oh. comments here. So, Carl, we uh, all five of us appreciate you uh, <laughs> listening in and, and commenting too. And yeah, I, I pulled this up well. when he said that. Damn good point. Yes. That, that's um, just a good all-purpose comment, I think. It is an all-purpose comment. <laughs> well, we'll just um, keep bringing it up as the show goes on. Exactly. <laughs> just pull the same up every time you speak. Or just have it scroll across. Good point, Mark. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Carl. Um, uh, autobiographical. What's interesting about that is the only autobiographical thing about it is that uh, one of the – Dickie said that kind of like what, in, what uh, the catalyst for uh, writing the novel was, I think he – and some friends may have been wandering through some backwoods and so forth, and they came up to a house, and they may have sat down on a porch or something. This is very – and then uh, that the owner actually approached them, came up to his property, and uh, Dickie uh, could feel that the potential for malevolence from this – I mean, there was nothing happened, but he said that if this guy would have turned to a more uh, malevolent – side of his personality it could have been trouble so he just thought about everything was fine but he just thought used that and thought about that encounter a very uh ultimately benign encounter but he thought well what if it it wasn't it turned malevolent and that uh he claims is the catalyst for uh, deliverance so that's like dude when Conan, you thought it's autobiographical like this it turned out to be like that. Not, not yeah. Much. yeah, just in, yeah, exactly. Just that one time like, I met that. Ed, <laughs> oh, wow. Donald Sutherland turned down the role of Ed because he objected to the violence in the script. He later said he regretted turning down the film. Whew. He said, uh, get in, loser. We're going, we're going canoeing. <laughs> it should be much better to have Donald Sutherland than John Voight. <laughs> um, well, John, John Voight does Pretty, oh, I John Voight's a phenomenal actor. I just he's yeah. a terrible person, and and yeah, it's, it's it's hard yeah. to remember that he like because it feels like a lot of times uh, John Voight now is kind of a lazy actor. You know what I mean? Like like, like Marlon Brando towards the end of his career. Yeah, well, just I I feel like he's just John Voight. Like you know what I mean? Like you hit a certain point where you're so uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous, I guess. Like you yeah, know, like that that everybody's like, oh well, that's just John Voight. Like I feel like. Uh, you know, Billy's dad's at it again, guys. I don't know. He tr he tried in uh, Anaconda. I, uh, I don't it. know what accent he was doing, but it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen it. Well, I don't know. I mean, like he's a dude that just like seems like to get political, and like that seems to be his whole thing right now. As some people tend to do when they get older, yeah. it, it's a shame. Woods. I, I forgot well, another great actor that just like yeah, just seems to be real busy antagonizing. No, no, Disney still still fucks with James Woods though because of the fact he's a phenomenal Hades. Like, hey, we need you for the boys in Hades. All right, let's do it. <laughs> There you go. But the, uh, I mean, I, I forgot about the climbing scene, which is yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. In this, like the whole him scaling the scaling the mountain. To, like, yeah, that's it. I've always had trouble with that because it just it's, it's almost, like James Bond or something. You know, yeah, it's like, what's well, going I on mean, here? It's, it's, it's a big slog in the script and in the novel as well. It's just it's very unlikely and it's very it's precipitated. His his reason for doing it is precipitated on this very narrow margin of thinking that this a hillbilly might be waiting for hours on on top of the hill at this particular specific spot, which is like winning a, the chance of that is like winning the lottery ticket, and also that he who has never climbed a rock face before, who's completely spiritually broken, physically. 
so much physical attrition has occurred to his body throughout this journey by now that it it would be like literally impossible to scale a uh, uh, ninety degree angle, almost a ninety degree angle like that. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's strange credulity. It's yeah. a large, it's, incred- <laughs> it's an incredulous thing to uh, to believe. Well, it's like, wow, like I just found out that I'm really it. really good at climbing out of nowhere. Never done it before. Never gone up anything before. But like, whoa! <laughs> I know that the guy, the actors needed a bit of training. I know Ned Betty for playing a character is kind of clumsy. He did have like experience in like canoeing. Well, and I know have to for those scenes. I mean, yeah, he. Uh, I, I've gone river rafting, but not canoeing. Bow and arrows, though, that's for sure. Oh, I've gone. I've gone canoeing a lot. It's uh, yeah. it kind of sucks after a while. I did it in the Pine Barrens. So I was like, "Ooh, Jersey Devil, any dead bodies? What's going on here?" <laughs> you I remember one, I took you uh, that one Russian guy from the Sopranos that got away from them in the Pine Barrens. I took uh, archery yeah. in college. I took archery in college, and my my professor first day of class goes, "Son, I ain't never seen anybody shoot an arrow sideways before." So and then you end up, you end up, you end up getting. Hey, I was, I was most approved in class. You'd be the, uh, you'd be like, you'd be the guy like uh, John Voight, who's in this next clip that you know hit himself with the arrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's probably the most believable part of that whole sequence is that like he accidentally injures himself. Because yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like it's one thing when it's like oh such and such is like an experienced hunter they've hunted their entire lives this person rock climbs every day blah blah and then someone's like wait what is he's scaling the mountain. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have my own opinions on that. Like, like, like it seemed like uh, the part of the movie was like, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds was like pretending, you know, was cosplaying as, you know, superhero Hawkeye. Uh, I mean, this looks like it could be a scene from Zardos. Yeah. Yeah. You see, he took his skills climbing up the ladder in the corporate world. And he transplanted those skills into climbing that rock face. <laughs> but, but yeah, he basically found it within himself, even though like earlier he couldn't shoot the deer because he was he was shaking and and he had that that uh, thing of yeah. doubt in his head. But the doubt left him, and he was able to climb the mountain. For the doubt is gone. Hallelujah. He really had he had sigma grind set. That's what he really had. You know, he had, he had the hustle mentality. We knew each other from the beginning, and we laughed a lot from the beginning. So there was always that ingredient. And John has a great sense of humor, terrific sense of humor. So he was the proper master for us to be dealing with at that time. We were rehearsing in this sort of country club in Clayton, Georgia, because the actors had to train in canoe and archery and and get fit. And we had, you know, it was a lot of work to do to get them into a state where they'd be able to safely make this picture. And we had two weeks of rehearsal where we all just sort of were together and we got together every day all day but we would sit for hours we talk about our relationship but then we talk about did our parents know each other and how did we get to be friends and what and we i mean we wrote a novel <laughs> john did anyway <laughs> and i tried to help and uh, so jim came up and sat in the bar and he had this booming voice and this powerful presence, and uh, he was very intimidating. And Dickie always called us by our character names. And uh, he went, Lewis, I'm talking to you, boy. Come over here. And the girl said, I think Mr. Dickie wants you. And I said, he ain't talking to me. My name ain't Lewis. My name is Burton. Tomorrow morning, I'll be Lewis. And then he went, he got up. 
and I could feel him coming, you know. And I was sitting in a bar stool. Now, a bar stool was pretty tall. And he was so big that he stood up over me and his hands down like this on the bar and his head was still here. And he went, now, Lewis, I asked you to come over there. I want to talk to you. I said, Mr. Dickey, I'm not Lewis. I'm Bert now. Tomorrow morning at six o'clock, I'll be Lewis. But now, get out of my goddamn face. And there was a quiet little moment there where I thought possibly he will kill me or cut me or stab me or whatever. And he went, That's exactly what Lewis would have said. <laughs> and then he went back over and drove them crazy for the rest of the evening. Never bothered me again. <laughs> That's a lot right. of Botox. <laughs> That's your takeaway from that. <laughs> yes. I, li I like how he's like this kind of British dude or whatever that's, uh, you know, and then, but like the, the idea that like he's just this kind of menacing presence himself, it seems like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like they're talking about like, oh, like he's a really high intensity director. <laughs> he didn't come off that way, but. No, and if you ever read, I'll watch the comments on Excalibur. He's, he's a very dry sense of humor about things. As I like Excalibur. Do. I, thought, I, thought, I thought that was a pretty good movie. That was a pretty good movie. At the yeah, time. yeah. It's okay. not great. It's just pretty good. I, I chose my words carefully. Yeah, no, no, it's, 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 I love it, but like, you know, it's, well, I was trying to think of what yeah. John Voight was up to before this. Of course, there was Midnight Cowboy and Catch 22, but like, yeah, it, it seems like this was like a pretty big shot in the arm for him. This was before fatherhood. Yes, yes, it was. I'm, I think, um, yeah, I, this movie gets referenced so much throughout pop culture too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it kind of feels like oh, yeah. Midnight Cowboy. That was a that was his big movie before this. Yeah, that's a, yeah I say Midnight Cowboy and uh, Catch Twenty Two are the only two I can really think of before this. Which I like both those. You know, yeah. there's there's a great book on that just came out on the uh, making of Midnight Cowboy, and obviously when they that's a great one. When they create these books, it's not just the making of the film; it's the history of everybody involved and the history of the authors, the, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm reading this book on the making of um, Midnight Cowboy, but uh, Dickie's son, he's got two of them. His son, uh, Chris Dickie, wrote a book called Summer of Deliverance that I that I wrote. And I, I definitely want to see if I can find that book again and, and read that. That was a kind of like a fascinating account of his uh, father during the time of uh, of uh, deliverance. deliverance. So it's Wasn't he like fun. on set or something at some like he he was like involved like just kind of it was a whole thing right I, I heard about it. yeah yeah like yeah that I don't I haven't I've read I read that book years ago and it and I, I I have a couple copies but I've got so many books I don't know I gotta find it again but there's a great book a couple of them one is uh they're by James Dickey one is called Self Interviews and it's just fascinating to go into his world and so forth and actually it's I think it's Henry Hart. Did a an extensive, a massive tome, uh, uh, extensive biography on uh, Dickie called "The World Is a Lie," and it's it's just uh, it just it was just just when it came out, I got it and just cover to cover went just went into its world. I have I have two clips of them to play in the after party, but they're like longer, so I figured I would wait till the after party to do that. But, oh, uh, 
I have, I have an interview with the four of them talking about um, the four actors talking about doing the pig squealing scene uh, that I wanted to play before <laughs> oh, wow. we go to before we go to the uh, letterbox. Right, I guess it, we I guess we had to address it, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, I guess we kind of <laughs> talked about it before, but it's it is amazing how that scene has like even people that have never seen the film like know the context of that scene and what it is and what it you know what it signifies. Like it, that and is it's been referenced everywhere. Like it's been referenced a million times. Like, from yeah. even like Rick and Morty, it's been referenced. Uh, I think I think even like an Adam Sandler, like it's been referenced in like a weird amount of places. I feel like, yeah, to to the point that I think some people don't even realize what it's from necessarily. It's like, it's like, you know, like when they it used to be called a flying disc, but it's the, you know, then the brand name was frisbee, but then it just became a frisbee, a certain degree, whatever that yeah. is for scenes. Anyway, <laughs> play this thing. Much like a fr- no, huh? much like a frisbee, yeah. By the time I saw Deliverance for the first time, I had already heard all of the references to the squeal like a pig scene and the intensity of that. So how do you think uh, it might be impossible for someone to be surprised or shocked that that's in the movie? How do you think that changes the way the film is viewed now? Oh, I I can't think it changes it much because those images came out of real life things but bill mckinney and i and the director we were both throwing stuff in the pot and that's where all that stuff came from and the, and the way he caught me when i ran uh it, it scripted it was just the fact that i gave in to what the situation was and i made myself available to whatever he wanted to do to me but john borman didn't believe that he thought well you are you going to try to do something so what he really wanted for is, is for me to run. And when I ran, I remembered how we, when I was in the situation, we were dealing with big boar hogs and how this older man would have to grab one of the back legs and I would have to hit it with the tackle and then roll up on top of it and then put the rope around the legs. And all this stuff was going on. And mm. that, that's when we came to the squealing of the pig thing. And, uh, I don't think it means anything that people have heard that line. You know, I've, I've heard lines that are in movies and it, I'm still thrilled when I hear the lines. Mm. And that's the way I feel about that picture. I don't think it matters. And see, I don't think that scene lets anybody off the hook. It doesn't let the actors off the hook. No. It doesn't let the audience off the hook. And, and, and so it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you may have heard about that film. It doesn't prepare you for that, yeah. for that scene. Yeah. It was, I must tell you that most of the people that were on the film did not want us to do the scene. A lot of people that were there on the film and a lot of the families that were, they didn't want us to do the scene. But the scene was pretty important to the movie, so we did it. Right on. It's hard. It's hard to think about it. This movie without it, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, what would this movie really? I mean, the you know, it wouldn't be as terrifying, right? Like some, some guys have a nice time on the river. I mean, like what? <laughs> maybe, then, why are they murdering these people? What, what's and then going one on? of them, and one of them falls in. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I think that there's nothing more terrifying than rape as an idea, right? Like, just the fact that some yeah. menacing presence could, you know, do something that horrifying to you, I think, is kind of one of the most genuinely terrifying things. And I think that this movie is terrifying because of that. I don't see how it could work uh, otherwise. Um, but there's also, I mean, to Mark's point earlier about this, um, 
I don't really know because uh, they they come upon those guys, right? Like they arrive on the thing and they're kind of standing there. But there's the, the other part where they hear something in the woods and there's kind of this general menace to it. And he's like looking around trying to see if like what it is. Bef- like it's the scene before that, uh, you know, at night and when they're in the, the tents. And I, I wonder, are they being hunted the entire time or are they, do they just kind of stumble into it? Or because you could, I think you could read it either way. Well, and it's almost like, you know, and I guess it'd be a more modern take on it, but like a more modern take on this film would be very different in a lot of ways, but not the least of which is that it would be like, it would have to be revealed that, yeah, they're being hunted the entire time or that it's all in their head or whatever. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this movie interesting is it sort of left up to the viewer to figure that out or not figure it out, right? Or not even think about it and have that like, oh, have they been followed like throughout in, like all the way down the river since then or like you know whatever like it's up to the viewer to kind of figure out fill in the blanks in that way that's my take yeah and and in some ways i think it's almost like i mean symbolically i guess it's almost like the river is doing something back to them like you know what i mean like although they're humans like it's almost like nature is almost reclaiming them in some like way. they're baptized now and yeah, but just, just the car <laughs> is it in this? Like, and that's a common trope in in, in films. I know that I know that some people say war turns men into beasts. I'm like, nature can do that. Yeah, yeah. nature is by definite, like definitionally a beast, and yeah. it's a beast that we just kind of keep kicking. Like, and 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 you know, I think that in sci fi, that like that's a pretty common thing too. Like, you know, when does nature strike back at you? Um, do they, Mark, do they spell that out in like the screenplay at all? Or is it just is it is that not really explicitly mentioned, or the book about like you know them basically being tailed throughout this journey, or if it's just they show up when they show up and that's what the film is? Mark Freeze. Oh, Mark, still there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. (laughs) That was good. Like, like, does it, I mean, does it, does it spell it out? You know, like, it, like I, I'm thinking I, of, what I was into what I was doing. What, what's the question? Uh, so like we were talking about, are they be are they being followed? Oh, you know, what's time, okay. Right? So I, I, you know, that's actually, that's excellent, excellent to um, consider that. But you know, when you talk about the tent and so forth, when you read the screenplay in the novel, uh, actually that it gets attacked by like an eagle or so forth. And I, I believe that's not in the film. I haven't seen it for a while that there's a menace outside, but it's actually a huge bird in the claws. One of the guys actually wrestles with the, the Eagle's claws that, that penetrates the uh, tent. Oh man. Yeah, that so would be really hard to film. Yes. Yeah. Imagine it being like that video where uh, Trump got attacked by the Eagle on his desk. Cause there was, <laughs> Like, yeah, so so so, <laughs> so, in, so when you say that, is there are they being followed? Is there a feeling of being watched and followed? That's kind of like addressed actually, but in a in a completely different and uh, very arbitrary way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it's sort of like the quiet menace of the whole thing is like you know that, that seems like, that seems like that's like that right. And then we discussed remember that ambigu- ambiguous menace that could possibly be in the woods that could possibly be within the shadows of the in the interior of the building of, of Griner's workshop and all of that kind of stuff. So Dickie was always hinting at an unseen a presence that was that was out there that was never explained, never revealed, but it was just that sense of uh, 
kind of like perpetual mystery, especially in in the beginning. But again, it, it has no narrative weight. It's just it's a uh, kind of like a, not not so much a red herring, but an undercurrent of of similar tone that does not strictly actually exist itself well, on the surface right, right it's building up the it's building up a vibe yeah. like, you know like a kind of terrifying one but i mean i like i don't know i feel this feeling a lot of times almost like i'm being washed when i'm outside at night and like you know like you're walking outside at night and like obviously there's always kind of it sounds like things are moving or something you know like when you're living somewhere that's uh more rural and like oh, oh yeah my mom had that experience right now living with my Uma. she's like she hears like this nice like this little like hissing sound she's like here kitty 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 and it's a fox <laughs> oh there's the there's a, there's a fox down the street for me right now that's uh you know, what does watching a lot of Tucker Carlson, but I don't know. It's no, but there's a fox on the street that's in heat that, that keeps uh, it sounds like a, a like a little kid screaming. Um, yeah, this isn't a Russ Meyer flick. Come on, <laughs> um, but but yeah, uh, thank you, Tony. <laughs> you want to jump to the one liners and uh, <clears throat> sure, sure, sure. So, uh, oh, the, the one thing I think I was, was going to mention before I forget is that I think it's amazing that they, yeah, these guys will drive our cars down to the bottom of the river, yeah. These guys that we just yeah, met. Guys we've never met before. That, that this that other was, guy we just met vouches for. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. This is this, this all. Yeah, there's no, there's no problem here. Like, yeah, okay. I mean, I guess 1971 was a different time, but like, <laughs> I mean, I'd be like, yeah, that's what you're gonna, you're just gonna give me your keys, huh? All right. <laughs> the guy says the guy says he might like they might be able to drive your car down. Like maybe, and then they're like, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> it's not even declarative. That's that's what it gets me. It's like not even like. Like you don't have like any kind of written contract. You don't have any kind of like stakes at all. Like what's to stop these dudes from just running off with your, with your cars, man? Like, and they and they get back there. They get back there and they seem like genuinely surprised. Like oh yeah, the cars are here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like well, that is that's probably the most shocking part of the movie to me, frankly. I mean, like it's like oh they didn't rip off their cars. Oh, amazing. <laughs> They're not covered in mud and and <laughs> right, the players yeah. are missing. <laughs> these these are hicks where would where would they hide the cars you know everyone would hear about it we were, we're I, I guess i don't know i mean maybe well, they, they can't take the, the cd players out of the cars and you know sell them on ebay this like, 1971 it would have been like e track player at best right i mean yeah. also in a, the guy's in the kind of a car lot where there's a bunch of just car parts like you could think that he would just disassemble the car just strip and, them yeah. yeah can make some money <laughs> i mean like i i, I, don't, I don't know if it's Look, I'm from Oakland. Like, yeah, that's just how I think, right? I mean, it's, it's like you yeah. wouldn't even you're just like, hey, can you drive this down there for me? Thanks, friend. Any lowballs, dude? Yeah, Any exactly. And he also he tries to give him. He totally tries to lowball. I'm like, man, this is not the dude that you should be trying to bargain down, man. And he curses <laughs> out. He's like, he's like, I guess I'll just go over here, you asshole, or something. And then yeah. the guys, and then the guy looks really menacing for a second. He's like, uh, he's like, he's like forty, and it's like. That yeah. worked. That worked. You you, you just love all the redneck guy. You think your car's gonna gonna be there when you get back? Just offhandedly contentious for no reason. It's it's like, dude, like like think about what you're doing here. Like, come on. But I don't know. But I think that's, that's part of the whole movie, right? This guy is reckless and he's not thinking about what yeah. he's doing. He's like well, he's like I'm gonna be fine. It's a river. What's you know? What's the worst that could happen? He he looks at the the that character looks at the brash and impetuous nature of what he's doing and sees it as like an attribute of masculinity and like you know something to aspire to rather than being like man you're just being being a reckless dick frankly yeah 
as evidenced by the fact that not all of them, you know, come out of it alive. And well, anyway, whatever. That's either here. And, and you think that Ned Beatty's character is going to be like kind of a dick. You know, he's fucking with the guy's hat and stuff. And then he's yeah. going to be like the sweetest out of them. And, and yeah, exactly. fucking, you know, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the most horrifying outcome and is, is the sweetest character. Anyway. Letterboxd is a place for film, is a social media site for film lovers to talk at, with, and to each other about the films they love, the films they didn't love, the films they were uh, scared by, the films they were thrilled by. Uh, all of this is, of course, best expressed in the Work Under Tight 5 one-liner format. Uh, not just Cisco and Ebert, everyone gets to have their say, bottom-up democracy. These are the Letterboxd one-liners that we will react to for the movie Deliverance. Did more damage to the image of the South than slavery. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> Username Toblerone, by the way, which I thought was pretty good. That's uh. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a nice little cherry on top. I don't. I don't think it's the it's the entire Sunday, but it's the, it's the cherry on top. Yes. <laughs> Let's go canoeing, he said. It'll be fun, he said. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth? Well, I'm I'm like, you know, I live right by a river with a with a boat landing in it. Like I live right by the boat landing. And I've had people be like, hey, uh, you know, I'm gonna take this like can I get a canoe somewhere and rent one? Like, can I take it down the river? And every single time I'm the fucking redneck guy in my in my mind, it's like, you don't want to fuck around with no river. <laughs> You're the harbinger. You're the harbinger in that situation. Yeah, well, for, that's for different reasons. hangs out by the docks with a banjo. <laughs> for different reasons though i say you don't want to go in that river because it's you know it's a it's a hudson river tributary and it's gross and you know if you have an open cut it gets infected <laughs> this movie significantly deteriorated the chances for banjo players to get laid by anyone outside their family tree <laughs> were they ever were they ever intending to i don't know <laughs> i actually saw uh pete Seeger's uh grandson do a show and he goes uh what's the difference between a, a large pizza and a banjo player and, you know, everybody's like, you know, quiet. And he goes, a pizza could feed a family of four. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey, these are the jokes, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but see, Pete Seeger, uh, who, like, I have actually met, like, when he was alive. But he's he's a lot like that Drew character, right? Like, he's the, um, like, the hippie kind of, uh, like, hey, man, maybe we should, you know, do this. Like, but not in the way that, like, uh, the more brash Lewis is. All right. Banjo guitar duet went so hard. It did. <laughs> it slapped. I, I mean, that was just a great number. It was. It's, a, it's an iconic scene for a reason. Yeah. But there was only one banjo in dueling banjos, which is weird. Yes. Agreed. It's a misnomer. I'm never getting a canoe, and I'm never getting anywhere near a river. Smart, uh, smart, smart reply, I think, to this movie. <laughs> yeah. Although I gotta say though, uh, you know, um, uh, what is that? Uh, where you sit in a raft down a river—that's fun. Yeah, but I mean, have a you have to know, you have to know what you're doing in this movie. That's just a different much. type of boat, though. Like, what? How is that different? Like, well, if you're, no, if you're... like douche canoe. <laughs> <laughs> the ones float up by air, man. It's totally different. How is that better? How is that an improvement? Um, <laughs> is, is, is it more likely to pop? <laughs> It's it, well. It's not. It's not rigid. Okay. All right. <laughs> I would simply take two metal canoes. That's an incredibly timely time there. You want to? You want to read that again so I can cut it better? Because your mic went out. I would simply take two metal canoes. I would have dueling canoes. I would. Yeah. Uh, 
what, what, but what two metal canoes would it be? Would it be like death metal uh, canoes and black metal canoes? <laughs> well, yeah, because that other one gets got, man. It gets it gets destroyed. That's a crazy scene because that's not a scene you can redo. You know, like that that canoe's dusted after after that scene. Yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't the edge and uh, you know and, and the helicopter that they or the plane. Oh, yeah, they, they redid the, the plane. Crash it. <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. Yeah. If Burt Reynolds has legendary mustache, everything would have worked out fine. Yeah, would have scared Ooh. off. Would have scared out the, off those two rednecks before anything could have this really happen. Pretty mustache. It was pretty mustache. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a bit like um, Chuck Norris's body hair quotient. Like, like once he grew in the beard, he could never be defeated. Because um, if you watch uh, that that movie he did with Bruce Lee, um, Bruce Lee was only able to defeat him because he was beardless, and Bruce Lee took out a chunk of his uh, chest hair. Okay. Jandrew world, everybody. Things go south. <laughs> yeah. Good one. Seems like everyone had a lot of fun out there in the woods. Imagine watching only the first half of this movie and not. What a delightful trip. Yeah. Oops. Seems like they had, they made a lot of friendships during yeah, that time. Exactly. Yeah. And those, of course, are the letterbox one-liners for deliverance letterbox social media site for film follow the show that's your host force miller the unfortunate damn employee over there uh, you can also follow me i of course am kona neutron uh, i'm all over letterbox jandu world is all over it as well uh right about now and he's uh reviewing all the stuff that you didn't know existed or that i didn't know existed i didn't, I didn't know, know these existed i'm like I, this yeah. thing exists i'm gonna watch it now he's, he's an archival of stuff that nobody cares about uh <laughs> i'm christina still threatening to do like the johnny depp uh, thing, but you should follow uh, yes. our, our wonderful I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, on Letterboxd as well. Mark, I don't believe you're a Letterboxd user, right? I don't think you've, you've utilized that site. But Well, let's... But for, no, I'm not, but let's point... I think I think that uh, Carl King has a valid point when he uh, said, man, the sun went down in Milwaukee, didn't it? He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm being lit by natural light. I was going to say you practically faded out. It's usually when people say yeah. they're faded, it's a totally I mean, different. In front of me, it's still light. Where I live, it's it's a jungle. In front of me, it's all just a canvas of dense green foliage. Where I watched a majestical translucence of the setting sun play upon the infinite leaves on a nightly basis, and now you're seeing its waning light. Yeah, I didn't want to narc you out, but I know you very much have a wilderness around you and that that in the, is something in the middle of the, in the, middle of yeah. the city i may add um and i'm uh, on the other side of the city which is very much more well lit by the way yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> the sun never sets on that side of the city. no no it never sets on uh casa de neutron yeah uh now, now in, in 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 following obviously what you're doing are you is this with all of this uh this epilogue of where people reside on this letterbox form, is that indicating the, the close of the show? It's, it's it means we're almost to the final thoughts. We just have because I have, a, I have with two the final thoughts with the film. Well, we're gonna do Andrew's gonna do seventeen minutes of plugs first, then you can. Then you can. <laughs> that's, no, that's a lot of minutes. <laughs> it just seems like seventeen minutes. It's because we keep interrupting them, really. Yeah, that, that and like Conan has like fifteen thousand things I to plug, so. Too much. Gander yeah. World, take it away, please. All right. If you're watching us on Twitch, um, please, if you can, subscribe. Uh, if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can subscribe for free. And that really does actually help us out. 
Uh, you're over on YouTube. Do the YouTube things like, subscribe, comment, hit the bell, and uh, big ask here. Watch the video to the end so other film view uh, fans can can find this uh, content, uh, and you get to hear that bitchin' Conan Neutron song. It is indeed bitchin'. I agree with you. Um, if you if you're tired of uh, watching our faces, or if you're really disturbed by Mark fading out to black, you can what <laughs> you can listen to this as an audio podcast. Um, uh, so wherever you get your podcast, we can be found. And also like and review us on whatever podcast service you prefer. Can um, I break the fourth wall, Andy? Because I initially I was asking about that podcast. I don't like to waste time and, and watch things, but I do fall asleep listening to the interesting voices such as yourselves. So this revelation that you could actually get it on a podcast is, is absolutely illuminating. So thank you. All right. Not, not illuminating in your room, but illuminating in general. <laughs> uh I, I made out that I do like the video section because, of course, you get to see J. Andrew World's lovely apparel. I've, I've had, I have made him step up his game, uh, and of course, the lovely Christina always brings her a game as well. Yes. So, uh, I go. But, I yeah. kind of go with the theme. I try. Like I was wearing, like, oh, zebra stripes, nature. Let's go. All <laughs> okay in my book. How crazy? Yeah, how crazy are you getting with it on uh, on Friday? Who me? Yeah, you're going all. Yeah, out. I'm going all out. I'm wearing my Harley cosplay. I got my militant and Justice 2 inspired Harley cosplay. All right. But before we get there, we also need to have. <laughs> we know, we're still doing the, I told you it was 17 minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Lots of tangents go through it. Um, but we have a Patreon. Uh, the Patreon really does help us out as well. And if you become a patron, you can party forever because the after parties are always available to you. You, you have to set that up a little bit better. You have to go. You have to set it up. You have to say we do our after parties, you know, for everybody this time. But if you want an after party forever, after party, party forever. forever. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, I, good. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't good. get there. <laughs> so uh, if you, if you need more Christina in your life, and I know we all do, who doesn't? Um, you can find her on Twitch at um Christina. Actually, on all the different social media stuff. Uh, yes. You know, Twitter. Um, uh, and uh, but particularly Twitch, we want you TikTok. To apparently, I'll never yeah, know. I, I, yeah, oh yeah, I'm, yeah, TikTok. Um, I'm never I'm looking at it. I'm on this Amber Heard interview, guys. I'm just. Mm, mm, uh, but if you want to help out Christina specifically, she has a Patreon. So please set that up if you can. Yes, and I just interviewed Cohen Neutron this past yeah, week. Yeah. How'd, you, how'd you land that one? That was good. She has a connection, you know. She has a connection yeah. to Protonic Reversal and. Hey, that brings me to my next plug. Hey, Protonic yeah. Reversal, great show. Um, who who do you have? Uh, who are you gonna have on this week? This is uh, this week is Mike Kunka of Godhead Silo. So uh, that's that should be a that should be a good one. I don't think there's been anything from them since they sort of disappeared into the ether. So I, I tracked him down, and uh, when he's done with his union meeting, he's gonna talk to me all about Godhead Silo, Enemy Mine, and all that good stuff. Exciting. Um, and if if you want to hear Conan sing. Because um, because you love our theme song and you just need to get more of his music. Um, his latest album is Dangerous Nomenclature. Uh, and you can find that on Bandcamp. So you just look up Code and Neutron Bandcamp and to go to Googles or whatever you use to search for stuff. If you're, if you're still at Alta Vista, it'll bring you right there. And you can <laughs> ask Jeeves to put NeutronFriends.Bandcamp.com in for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, there's a video coming for the commuter. So I hear. 
uh, that will be out when I get done filming it with Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting there. We're getting there. It'll be it'll be before the end of summer. Yes, we will notice that like Conan has like three different hair lengths in it because it's taking so long. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> no, but no. hopefully it'll be before Mark turns fades to black completely because it's yes. getting there. <laughs> yes, yes, we've almost lost fading Mark. into the into the darkness um, speaking of which is there anything you'd like to plug mark or or should i, I, plug something I don't for think you? so i think that's all bullshit but i would like to say um, <laughs> quite seriously is that to, to, to eat right and exercise you know to, to, to drink water uh they, they just they debunked eight glasses a day obviously that's ridiculous everybody has a different metabolism but to you know to have a banana and apple and orange and maybe strawberries and grapes and so forth and you know and and to keep your back straight, because that's very important, because that's how the the, uh, the <laughs> mechanism, the body, the function. As the entire body. show adjusts their posture. <laughs> you heard it. Shout out to apples. Shout out to oranges. Yeah. Shout out to to water. Shout out to straight backs. <laughs> yeah, and when you and when you walk, don't just put one foot in front of the other. Take some walks that are actually calibrated to the sensibility of raising your heart rate and getting good exercise. And I only bring this up. Because I, I love all four of you, and in addition, the audience as well. And I just want you guys to be happy and healthy. I've been uh, uh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of I've been doing a lot of biking. Like on a, I, I got a new bicycle uh, last bicycle. week, and uh, you know, I, I, I've been riding around on my one that's kind of like fucked up. Like it, the the gears were like just not working correctly, so I got a new one. Mobius, I guess is the name. I found like we we found it somewhere, so it's not even what like a, so it was free. But it literally did you, is. Did you get a, a Morbius the Living Vampire bicycle? Is that what yeah. you got? Yeah. <laughs> it's a bicycle by day, vampire at night. Jared, Jared Pedo. Um. Pedal. <laughs> Bicycles are great exercise. I agree. Yeah. I, I actually am looking forward to uh, the new place uh, where we're actually going to have a place to actually use the exercise bike that we bought and uh, I can actually breathe, which is one of my big problems is I can't exercise at home right now. Um, in the wintertime, it's hard to get out there and, and do something to get your heart rate up. But this winter, I am looking forward to actually being able to one, breathe because my, I won't be living in a place where uh, I have neighbors who are constantly smoking and making Ventilation it hard for them. Is, but... is, is important. And we, I mean, it doesn't get thought about enough, but like, it really is like I have, my allergies are so bad and like not being able to breathe really just fucks everything else up for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, if I had an exercise bike and a place where I could breathe, I'd be. This seems like know. after party conversation. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Final thoughts, guys. Let's go. Yeah, because I was I was uh, all ready to plug the one for Mark, and uh, you know, as as uh, uh, for those of you who like um, uh, everything uh, everywhere all at once, but you think it needs a little more puddle of mud. And some mark, <laughs> but uh, I think this nobody has so ever thought better. that. So. <laughs> you know what? In respect to Carl King, okay, um, I do a show on. Uh, it's a good show. Cinema tonight, and it's on at uh, one o'clock on Saturday afternoons at River RiverWestRadio.com. Cinema tonight. So it's, it's Carl. Thank you for um, for you know because like I say, I I think I think. You know, the most important thing, it's like brick building. You, you build your own life and you, all of this artificial, artificial bullshit amounts to nothing unless, of course, you can monetize it or push your own narrative forward. But wholeheartedly, yeah, thank you, Carl. Cinema Tonight is at riverwestradio.com. Thank you, sir. I mean, you know, this this show isn't really exact. Like, it's not monetized right now, really. I mean, we have 
uh, a Patreon, but like it's mostly just about hanging out and having like fun and like you know talking about movies. Like it's not. Dude, like a, that's uh, uh, that's perfect. Anything that's spiritual and happy, all of that is good. But always to take crazy stuff seriously. It's like, well, okay, as long as everybody's having fun, man, then it's a great thing, man. And um, so, but everybody's got to be different, you know, and everybody's got to do do their own thing, you know. And and that's a that, that's uh, it's it's. It's just an amazing thing to be alive, man. It is. I agree with that. Um, Mark, I want to hear still some. The, uh, still in the plugs? No, we're not still in the plugs. No, I want to hear no. some. Uh, I want to hear some final thoughts. I want to hear well, your yeah, last yeah, yeah. thoughts on this. Uh, on this. Movie. So this this cacophony of craziness has allowed us to elude some main points here about uh, deliverance. Um, <laughs> one of the most fantastic scenes. One of the things, cinematically, that is just extraordinary, actually, about deliverance. There's a scene. When Bobby, they're at the shoreline, they're done uh, ra- ra- canoeing for the day, and Bobby's extremely enthusiastic, and he's expressing this. He's expressing this, he, he, this um, transformation, you know, of his spirit from being very apprehensive to really getting an energy and a kick out of the river. And as he, for the very first time in, in his life, is expressing this newfound enthusiasm the camera is slowly zooming into him at the same time cross-cutting slowly into burt reynolds as burt reynolds by rote is doing his uh you know his performative piece about the you know about uh survival whatever he's doing and as each person continues overlapping each other and keeps cross-cutting psychologically and technically Burt Reynolds' character of Lewis Medlock wins as the camera then rests on him and his indestructible urge, indefatigable urge to get his way in his ideology across. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's kind of it's it's powerful, and he kind of uh, just from the very beginning of it, right? You kind of have that with uh, the the dialogue at the first, like you kind of know who at least he is from the very beginning of it. But do you understand the concurrency of not only of psychology, but of the technical interpretation of that psychology as they zoom closer into each character? Yeah. Cross-cutting, meaning they're each vying for that collective psychological space until mm-hmm. the camera ultimately holds on Lewis Medlock, thereby winning that psychological yeah. showdown, unwitting psychological showdown. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah maybe yeah, this sure. is better for the coda because it seems to put everybody in a very serious state. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, the jokes are over, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't don't worry, Andy will take us off topic. And then the second thing, the most one of the more beautiful um, realms of, uh, of, uh, of of filmdom is when they go to that uh, kind of like hotel uh, where you also yeah. like a like a air early, kind of like a, a bed and breakfast almost in back in the day. And they've just been through this traumatic thing in a in a world that is not theirs, and they're gently get drawn into that dinner. And somebody might may say, "I think the 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 corn is going to be good this year," and that incites everyone to start small talk, which builds up into a uh, into a robust banter. And uh, our guys become part of that world and re-embraced into the world. Yeah, and and it almost feels almost like uh like filling up the dam, right? Like his yeah. his eyes at for like he, he's crying at the table, and then 
like it's almost like the conversation itself is almost like water you know like once the water starts filling up everything kind of starts going and and, and let me say this is is a coda to all of that so when you guys talk about the difference between the film and the screenplay you know how the film ends correct you ain't gonna believe this in the screenplay it ends with one of the guys' kids water skiing on the lake. That's the last shot. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, I could, that's, that could that's have been really interesting. Is. Yeah. It's a different vibe. Yeah. And I, you know what I want to point out? One other thing that I learned throughout the years is kind of like not the containment of energy, but the parsing out of energy because a lot of people can come on real strong during a show and then they kind of just – like fade out, like they're almost suddenly get depressed and so forth, and or they tire out. And what I learned was to pace one's psychological self for the duration of an event like this. Yeah. And just let your light fade out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like distance out. running. It's distance running instead of sprinting, right? So, yeah. yeah. So it and, and that's something character wise to be to be proud of. Like like you said, a sprinter that they have to pace themselves. And also some people, they realize, dude, you have to pace yourself. You know, you can't just be like this flaming light at the beginning and then fade out into oblivion during. I mean, obviously, the joke is 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 a running joke as my light fades here. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure. It's and it, pl- it plays more for the visual effect rather than the podcast. But yeah, Mark's light uh, for the podcast listeners. Mark's light has dimmed <laughs> in the course yeah. of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? I don't give a damn because you guys are all lit, so everybody can see four lit people, and then they can see one unlit person, right? Well, no I'm about to lose sleep tonight. I'm about I'm to get lit in the after yes. party. Yeah, I'll just, <laughs> we almost made that joke. So kind of lit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to work tomorrow. Yeah, that's that sucks. That's tough. Do you have any final thoughts that aren't about work, Christina? <laughs> oh, oh, th- I thought. I mean, I didn't. I watched this movie for the podcast, obviously, because I never really heard of this film until I was like, okay, what, oh, a movie with John Boyd, Burr Reynolds, and Betty. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be interesting, and it was. It literally was giving me Lord of the Fly vibes, but for like adults. Did you have any frame of reference before? No. You really? Know, did you, never heard did your mom come in and be part of this? No, she's been living with my Uma, Annie. She's been she's been out and about. Like she has, she doesn't have time to watch movies that I'm watching now. Well, I, no, I just, I, that, that's a in, that's a, a serious question because I think it's interesting that I feel like it's so culturally ubiquitous, but I almost feel like a lot of people haven't really seen it or seen yeah. it in totality. So yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 I haven't I hadn't seen it I hadn't seen it until I watched it for this, but I've word for word have like seen other things reference the like i knew that, yeah. that there was a movie called deliverance that had that scene i didn't know like i didn't know anything else <laughs> yeah but out of like out of like like 10 out of 10 canoes <laughs> metal ones i hope yeah 10 out, yeah. 10 out of 10 oars and you got to hold on to your hold on to your paddles <laughs> um yeah conan Yep. So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think it's bonkers how the I mean, it's not even practical effects or stunts like it's it's honest to goodness, real danger personified on the screen with four leading men. We used to have like really leading, men, leading men things like climb rocks. Well, no, but I'm, I, but I'm being serious here. Yeah, yeah, like, we have Tom Cruise climbing rocks, though. But it's pretty much unreal in its realness because people don't do this anymore. 
people don't shoot movies like that anymore. You, you don't like you certainly don't do, do so without insurance and like have a line and a character saying that he doesn't believe in insurance either. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's uniquely of its time that way because it's you know, this is 71, right? Uh, and and I think that that's absolutely makes for some stunning scene work and composition. And and like it, this is a really interesting, beautiful film in, in, in the cinematography work and in the directorial work that I think it's lost with the shock value of like the one scene. Right. And I, I still say that, you know, Banjo Plain Kid has to be an all timer for like creepy harbinger. Uh, as well and that's something that like i never really thought about before until we basically analyzed everything in the murder night extravaganza uh series that we did in october but you know the plot is so simple like they're just like they just they wanted these city dwellers want to take a trip down the river before it's turned into turned into a lake you know hijinks ensue yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i think you know i mentioned before that i think the scene is designed to make the men in the audience think about sexual assault. And I think that was very effective in that way to the point that it's almost like a cultural touchstone. It's not, I don't think it's the most important thing about the movie, but I think it's certainly a jarring scene and it's something that, uh, you know, has endured for a reason. Uh, I think that uh, this has got to deserve place as a cinema classic. And I'm glad to, I'm glad to have watched it, I guess a little more analytically, but, but, as an adult rather than just like, Hey, check out this. I mean, I saw it as almost like, you know, what I used to characterize it as when you get showed a faces of death video or something, which is just like, Oh, check this crazy thing out. I was like, Whoa, it is like, and like, I saw it too young. So I was like, that's not real. Is it like, no, it's just a movie. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, to watch it, at, you know, with an interest in film, one thing I will say, great movie poster for a scene that never happens anywhere in the movie. <laughs> where there's like a shotgun like in the water like like taking a beat on them it's such an evocative image nowhere in the movie yeah <laughs> but it is an evocative image well the guy does and have a have a shotgun but you never he see does him. have a shotgun and they are on the water but like it's it's like it's such a like you could do a whole show on iconic images that do not appear in the film right and that would be like one of them but uh yeah i, I like i said cinema classic I enjoyed it, enjoyed watching it, I've enjoyed discussing it. So, win, win, win. All right, Andy? Well, well, since Conan stole my thoughts about the poster, uh, I'm just going to mention that... Uh, Sorry. Uh, no, no worries, no worries. No, you got to mention the music. And... Uh, yeah, yeah. No, the I music. didn't, so go ahead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we kind of did talk about the music. I, no, I, mean, no, it, really, just... it really is fantastic, the music. But, um, no, uh, the, the one thing I love about this movie, uh, I actually have seen it before as an adult. I, I didn't watch it as a kid. Um, I don't remember being on Georgia television. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but uh, <laughs> Chamber of Commerce. It's, it's great. It's uh, yeah, it's great uh, tourism. Uh, you know, <laughs> only the first half of the film. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a really, really. Man, it's a short film. Oh, yeah, the great. cable feed went out. Oh man, I guess we can't finish Deliverance. But great, great, great first half, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Uh. But but the the thing I love about this, it's like a uh, um, uh, Tales from the Crypt uh, comic, like like. You know that mm. that's this beautiful six pages, like expanded out wonderfully into to uh, uh, to, to the perfectly cut film. I mean, it's the, the pacing is wonderful. Um, and and uh, the only difference between like this and a Tales from the Crypt comic is at the end, everybody who died in the in the, the the movie would have come back as a zombie and take dragged off. Um, you know, the other guys and leaving Burt Reynolds alone in the hospital. And then they never got to finish that lake. They never get to <laughs> like, oh no. Oh, one one thing, one thing in this movie that was really jarring to me is when they uh 
they're they're bringing everything out of the town and they take the church and they're like oh we gotta wait for the church oh to pass. we gotta wait for the church to get out yeah. of the way yeah that's such a <laughs> that's such a wild scene like what which which i actually remember as a kid in georgia seeing uh you know churches being moved like that so so you know it's not that uncommon uh at least in the 80s well, out um, here i've never seen it well you know you're up in upstate new york right? i know okay, I, they don't do things like that like like we do in the south no they they they, they would just you know, keep the church there and yeah, they just flood the church. <laughs> they, y'all don't respect God and not, <laughs> and not with donations. Um, <laughs> but uh, all right, um, Andy's at it for the pretty much. All right, well, uh, we're gonna go to the after party in about you know 10, 10 minutes, 15, I don't, whatever, whatever you guys want to do with in a little bit. We're gonna go to the after party. Um, my final thought on this movie is uh, you know, hang on to your paddle, and if we hit any rocks, don't hit them with your head. Thank you.